Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Looking at uh, next week, uh, uh, looking at vocation and, the, and as it relates to Genesis, uh, latter part of one, uh, and then uh, and uh, chapter two as well. So, let me read Genesis one to you. Uh, and then Pastor Tim will come and lead us in the study of the Word. So Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to, their, to its own kind. And God saw, every, saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the, of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let, eat, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth 
and every tree with, with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, for reading that. We open our time here with a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege that we do have to come and to gather together as a people, uh, to think about your scriptures, Lord, to think about what you have to say to us. And we know that it is a responsibility that you have given us to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us, Lord. We know that there are many attacks uh, about the Bible that are coming from within and without the church, and we want to be people who understand uh, the sorts of things that people are saying and are ready to defend uh, the truth with your word, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to do that today and to come away with great understanding about what you are communicating uh, in your scriptures today. And we know that sometimes it's helpful to think about um, the uh, errors that people are putting forward so that we can uh, hold them up to the light of your word and see if they, they fit. So we thank you for all you do. In your sense, I pray. Amen. Three of the standard questions that are reflective of any sort of worldview are the questions, who are we, where do we come from, and where are we going? These are the sorts of questions which mankind has been asking for most of human history. And for most of human history, it's been very difficult to, uh, for human beings to ignore certain inescapably logical conclusions. And so these are the sorts of questions that people have always asked. Uh, you, you look up at the sky and you wonder at your smallness and you wonder, you know, who are you in light of this vast expanse that you see? Where did you come from? What is your destination? What's your purpose? These are the sorts of questions that people have always asked. And, and really, you know, there's... There's a sense in which it's been very difficult for us to ignore certain logical conclusions. And I'm going to mention a few. Uh, first being that things have beginnings and endings. Uh, when we come to life, we live for a few years and then we die. Uh, so we observe our life in the framework of a beginning. I have a birthday and an ending. I have a, uh, a day of death, a time of death that some doctor might pronounce if I'm at a hospital or something along those lines in a, an obituary that will be written about me. We, we understand ourselves in the framework of a beginning of life and an ending of life. Uh, but then it's not only humans who have a beginning, an observable beginning and ending. Uh, you look around the trees, the animals, the plants, all the trees and the animals and plants that you see, you're going to have visible signs of beginnings and endings, you can plant uh, grass in your backyard, as I've been trying to do for the past two years with little success uh, as far as that goes. But uh, a lot of wasted money, and you will find that you can throw some seeds on the ground and um, make a mess and all that. And eventually some grass will start coming up, and so it has a beginning. And then 
apparently, because of my lack of skill in this area, it has a fairly quick ending too. And so uh, you observe that uh, it grows up for a little bit and maybe I'm not diligent enough to water it or uh, not picking out the right seeds, but it quickly seems to die and we're left back to square one. Uh, so when you look around the world, one of the things that you realize is that there's a certain inescapable sort of conclusion to the things that you see. There's animals that are born and then they die. Uh, with with living things, it's always a sad event to watch, and it, uh, whether you're talking about humans or uh, animals, unless you're some sort of a sadistic person, as far as that goes. Uh, but then it is, a, it is a, a sad thing to watch, but everything seems to have beginnings and endings. And when you, when you factor it out to other things, as far as that goes within creation, you realize that it's, it's difficult to understand the world that we live in and stare at the creation we live at and not try to trace it back to some sort of origin point or beginning point. Because for us, it seems inconceivable that uh, the creation as we know it has always existed in the same kind of state and form. Invariably, what you're doing when you're looking at the world that you live in, you're, you're trying to ask the question, well, when was the beginning? When was it? How did it happen? Uh, so that's the question of where did everything come from? Uh, when you look around at the world, it, it's almost it, it's been ex- inescapable almost for most of people throughout human history to conceive of the reality that everything uh, that we see has just always been eternal. We want to understand it in the, fr- the common framework that we understand everything else of beginning and endings. Uh, a second inescapable logical conclusion that we come to when we look at the world is that something does not come from nothing. So you look around the world, you you see things, you realize that um, if I want to build a house, I can't simply just snap my finger and make the house exist. Uh, a similar way what we talked about last week with creation, I can't just simply, uh, despite what you know Gloria Copeland tells me, I can't just uh, simply look at my wallet and say to my wallet, you're a big fat wallet full of money, and then all of a sudden, poof, money magically appears in my wallet. It really doesn't work that way. Um, Something doesn't just come from nothing. If I want to build a house, I can't snap my finger and make it exist. Someone has to cut down some trees and get them into some sort of useful form, uh, you know, to get them in boards that are hopefully fairly straight so that it doesn't collapse and kill me. Uh, We need to take metal and make it into nails and wires. Uh, Therefore, in the creation of something new, at least from the human perspective, I must take what already exists and work it into some usable form and go from there. So uh, if I'm going to create something, things don't just happen. They don't come from uh, from nowhere. We have to look around the world. We have to take what we can and reshape it into some sort of usable form. We simply don't have the magical ability to make uh, things appear in that way. Uh, third, when... When you look around the world, one of the things you realize is if there is evidence of a design, there must be a designer. Uh, so, you know, as it's often been said, if, you, if you're walking on a beach and you stumble ac- across a pocket watch, even though I don't know that many people seem to carry pocket watches anymore, uh, but supposing that you did walk along the beach and you see a, a pocket watch, you're not going to think about that pocket watch that... It was just the product of time and chance. Uh, what you're going to do is you're going to look at that pocket watch and you're going to see that there is, uh, there must be some sort of designer 
There must be some sort of creator because when we observe the natural world, we look out at the world that we see, one of the things that we realize is that it doesn't just come into that kind of order. And no matter how long you, you have in terms of time, it doesn't help you as far as that goes. And so this is true of something as complicated as a pocket watch. Uh, but then it's also uh, very true with something like just a, just a rudimentary tool. Uh, so, you know, we haven't had the technology to build uh, pocket watches as far as that goes. But, but uh, you know, even thousands of years ago, if you have a wooden mallet that is that you're going to stumble across on the beach that is uh, that has a handle that's smooth, that seems to fit in a human hand. Uh, and, you know, uh, you're going to look at that sort of thing and you're going to say that didn't just that wasn't just a tree that fell down. In, in landed here on the beach in the absence of any sort of tree anywhere around me. That isn't really what happened. Someone made this thing. Uh, when we look around the world, that's what we see. We see uh, when there's evidence of a design in that sort of way, there must be evidence of a designer. So when you put all these things together, you're going to realize that we live in a world that looks, and people have realized this for a long time, and for most of human history, people have understood the logic of what I'm saying. When you look around the world that we see, we see a world that looks inescapably designed. We understand that things don't just poof, come out of nowhere. Uh, that, that doesn't just happen. Uh, and we also understand that things generally have beginnings and endings. And so when you, when you look at the kind of uniquely designed world that we live in, when you look at your hand and, and you, you think about the complex body systems in your hand, you don't even have to know a whole lot about the science behind it, although the science is confirming how uh, irreducibly complex everything is in general. You don't even have to know anything about the science to realize that intuitively we're looking at a world that looks very designed, for one, and we know that we're looking at the kind of world that doesn't just, it's, it's very designed, it doesn't just, poof into existence without some sort of intelligent cause behind it. Uh, so you're looking at the kind of world that, uh, that you understand has, ha- has to have had some sort of beginning and will invariably have some sort of ending. And, you ought to, and people throughout the history of the world have always looked at this kind of world that we live in and said, um, the natural order doesn't have enough information in it to explain how we have such a complex thing that, uh, that uh, like everything else, has to have some sort of beginning and ending and just magically appears. And so there must be some sort of creator, you know, whether it's a single God that you believe in or a polytheistic God, there must be. We live in the kind of world that you must have something that is some sort of intelligence that can bring this kind of design thing into existence uh, who is fundamentally different from the kind of creation that we live in. And people throughout the history of the world have always thought this way. Uh, only until fairly, fairly recently have we attempted uh, to come up with some sort of naturalistic explanation for the phenomenon that we deserve, uh, that we have observed. And so that leads us to some sort of discussion about some of the theories that have been put forward in the last couple hundred years uh, that are mainly attempts to try to explain the origin of life, the origin of the cosmos that we know, uh, apart from the, uh, the unique design or creation of some sort of creator, which has been the standard view uh, throughout human history. So what is evolution? Well, evolution is an attempt 
on the part of naturalists. Now, naturalists are those who don't believe in the supernatural. So, in other words, a naturalist is a person who uh, believes that the physical world that we see is all that there is. And that there is, uh, there's nothing outside of that. So the natural world is it. There is nothing uh, beyond that that uh, brought this into being. Uh, basically, this is all that there is. So that's what a naturalist is. But evolution is an attempt on the part of naturalists, those who do not believe in the supernatural, to explain the origin of the human species. Uh, evolution, therefore, is an attempt at an explanation at human origins. And so it's... You often talk about evolution in light of the word theory. It's a theory of origins that is attempting to explain the world we see without respect to anything supernatural or creator or something along uh, those lines. Now, um, as Christians, we maybe get ourselves in trouble at times because we, we don't make the sorts of distinctions that we ought to make. And so I'm going to try to give you a distinction very quickly that will help you in your interaction with uh, unbelievers or uh, Believers who've been misguided uh, in certain ways, but I'm going to try to give you a distinction to help you to interact with them in a, in a bit of a helpful way. Because often in these sorts of discussions, when you're speaking with uh, individuals about evolution in general, uh, there there's, there are category errors that are happening that are fairly easy to uh, refute if you have uh, some, some categories to work with. Uh, there are two types of evolution, okay? Two types of evolution. There's micro what's called microevolution. There's what's called macroevolution. So, a Christian ought not to have any problem. A Christian who believes the Bible from start to finish, and who wants to read Genesis in a straightforward way, should have no problem with the concept of microevolution. So, microevolution is just the acknowledgement that uh, there are gradual changes over time within various species of life. So, uh, you know, you can, you can look at the domestic dog and realize that over years and years of breeding, you can, you can make some fairly uh, unique types of dogs. You can make really small ones that, I guess, bite your ankles, and then you can make really large ones that are kind of terrifying. Um, but then, you know, you look at them, and they're both dogs. Uh, so microevolution is the idea that over time there are gradual variations within the species and these uh, vari variations over time get broader and broader and broader. And so when you look out at the world, you realize that, uh, you know, birds come in many different varieties. And if you breed specific types of birds over and over and over again, you can you can create new things. And so microevolution is just the, uh, the idea of changes within species, uh, if you want to use that scientific sort of word. Over time, that is obvious and observable. There is no problem there. We we all look around the world. We see evidence of microevolution uh, in that sort of way. We pass out. We pass down specific genes to our children. They end up looking like us. And you do that enough and enough, and you're going to get uh, changes uh, to such a degree that hey, maybe at some point, you know, you're going to end up with Asians. Uh, you're going to end up with individuals of African American. Uh, complexion, if you want to put it that way, uh, you're, you're going to end up with uh, uh, Spanish-looking people, Mexican-looking people. You're going to end up with all sorts of variety within the human species over time. These changes become more and more dramatic, and that's what microevolution is. Now, macroevolution is, is a different animal. So when you talk about macroevolution, what you're not uh, talking about 
is you're not talking about just gradual changes within a species over time that uh, remain in some sort of fixed framework, right? So with the idea of like macroevolution, what I just talked about, or microevolution, what I just talked about, you know, you can you can breed animals and you can make them different, but then there's limits, right? There's limits to what you can do, and so uh, at a certain point. Uh, you know, you can you reach bounds within species that are unovercomable. So, uh, you know, you, no matter how hard you try, you're really not going to be able to breed a cat and a dog, right? I mean, you can't even you can breed a lion and a tiger and get uh, various combinations, uh, liger and tigon and everything else. Uh, you can do that sort of thing, but then you realize that the product of that is going to be a sterile animal. Uh, so there's like there's limits to what microevolution, the kind of changes you can take in terms of microevolution. But whatever you you do, you're not going to breed a dog with a bird, right? Like it doesn't work quite that way. It, it, it uh, you might be able to breed a dog with a wolf and get a wolfhound and that sort of thing. But um, what there, there's limits to these sorts of things. And so when when you talk about the idea of macroevolution, that's going beyond what I've just described, and it's basically a, a, the idea that. Uh, you know, if you look around the world and you see the people that we see and the kind of life forms that we see, the theory is that, well, how do you get these complex uh, life forms in, in, in the vast variety that we see? Well, there must be some sort of, uh, you know, uh, an evolution, a macro evolution of simple life forms that evolved into more and more complex life forms over time. So you have simple life forms that uh, evolve into complex life forms uh, over time. And invariably, you keep on pushing that out over and over and over and over and over again, and you're going to get the wide variety of uh, species that we, we have seen. And so you, you think about the, the what evolutionists are saying is that we're saying that every single type of animal is ultimately, at, uh, you can think about like a tree that, of expansive animals. They're all, you can all trace their ancestry back through common um, ancestors, and eventually you're going to get to something very simple. So the theory of evolution is saying you start with something very simple and you get to the complex and diverse wide variety of animals that you see. And no doubt in the midst of that, you're going to have transitional forms that are going to explain like the un, uh, overcomable boundaries within species that we observe today. So there must be some sort of transitional form and gradual changes with that and that. And ultimately you give it enough time and you know, you're going to have the dog and the cat going out from some sort of other animal, or you're going to have the human and the ape that have some sort of common evolutionary ancestor that we both evolved from, and eventually uh, we've spread out as far as that goes. And so the idea of macroevolution is the idea that I think most Christians have trouble with when they read Genesis 1.1. Uh, when most of us are reading Genesis 1.1, what doesn't fly off the page, or Genesis 1 period, what doesn't fly off the page is the idea that God created the world and, you know, it. Um, he set some sort of evolutionary process of change where, you know, the, an, the uh, animal spontaneously arose from lower amoebas or lower kind of uh, life forms as far as that goes. And at some point, given enough time, they gradually uh, came into existence and you push that out and you push that out and man's kind of at the top of the ladder uh, where the final stage of the most advanced uh, form of intelligence. When you read the Bible, that isn't whatever you say about Genesis 1. It doesn't seem to be on the face of it 
clearly saying that sort of thing. It seems like what it's saying is that God is creating animals after their own kind, their own type. You look at the text and you're going to realize that uh, there's, there's animals that are created in the air. There are cattle and animals that are, creeping on, uh, that are on the ground. There's creeping things. Uh, each one are created as a distinct thing after their own kind. Uh, seemingly in the forms that we observe today, no doubt with greater variety than what we see today. Um, but maybe not. Uh, but when you look around the world, you, you, when you're looking at the text in Genesis, what you're going to see is it seems to be that the text, if it's read in a straightforward way, is saying that in the space of seven days, God made every type of animal that we see today, and he made humans too as a distinct and special uh, creation. And, and that a man is not simply just a evolved uh, animal, the highest on the evolutionary ladder. We seem to be a different sort of creation that has a unique purpose and function that are given revelation by God, uh, scriptures by God, and given rule over the animals. All these things seem to naturally arise from a simple, straightforward reading of what we did last week and the kind of things that uh, Kevin is talking about. And so with uh, you say, well, what is evolution? Well, evolution is an attempt to give an alternative understanding of origins that is attempting to try to explain the world in a different sort of way. So that when you think about the history of evolution in that kind of framework, one of the things that you're going to realize is there really is no single theory of evolution. We speak about evolution as if it's just a thing that has no variation in it. Well, no, it's a series of competing theories which have arisen over time, which uh, in some sense have corrected other theories and uh, you know modified other theories. And even today, you don't have some sort of unified understanding of, uh, of uh, the exact uh, way in which all of these things work. You have competing theories that are trying to explain uh, something that both evolutionists and non-evolutionists uh, were not present to observe. So none of us were present on the day of creation, or whenever uh, some sort of big bang happened, or uh, the beginning point of our universe, none of us were there at that time. We weren't able to observe what happened, but we're all looking back, and we're trying to uh, you know, ask, what sort of evidence are we going to use that, uh, that is going to enlighten us as to events that happened that were unobservable to us? So there's no theory, single theory of evolution, but there, there's going to be competing contradictory theories, which have developed since the early 19th century. The first biological evolutionary theory was published by a French naturalist, naturalist meaning person who doesn't believe in the supernatural um, universe that we see is all that exists. Uh, the first theory was developed by a French naturalist named Lamarck. If you look this guy up, uh, this was in 1809. If you look, at, look this guy up, he's going to have a name that has about um, seven features to it. And so uh, sometimes people just call him Lamarck and they don't uh, work through the seven different uh, names uh, that are listed there uh, in mangled French. But uh, there's a French naturalist named Lamarck in uh, 1809. He was, he's published the first evolutionary theory. He no doubt didn't invent the idea. It was the idea that was circulating around the world at the time. Uh, however, the figure most commonly associated with the birth of evolutionary thought is Charles Darwin and his work on the origin of the species published in 1859. So as we've noted, Darwin didn't invent evolution, but what he did was he provided a theory called natural selection, uh, which attempted to explain how one biological life form could change gradually over time into a more complex uh, form of life. So what Charles Darwin did is he put up a theory that is attempting to explain 
how uh, very simple life forms can over time evolve into very complex, evolve and change into very complex uh, forms of life. And so what he's doing is he's putting forward a micro or macro form, macro, macro. He's putting forward macro theory of evolution, right? How can one, how can you start with something very simple and change into something very complex? So now natural selection in that way is the process whereby organisms uh, better adapt to their better adapted to their environment tend to survive and pr- uh, produce more offspring and so he's putting forward an explanation for how you can go from very simple to complex well the organisms that um, uh, are very adapted to a particular environment they survive they're going to produce offspring that are also adapted to the environment and then you have the whole idea of survival of the fittest and everything else that's kind of put into this sort of framework but that gives you some understanding about the history now what's What's the motivation of evolutionary theory? What's the motivation? Well, I mean, you read the writings of these guys, uh, these early evolutionary uh, theorists, and one of the things that you're going to realize is that they are self-consciously, self-consciously, meaning in their writing, attempting to put forward an explanation for origins that is... uh, What they're doing is they're trying to theorize about an explanation for origins of human life and the world that we see that is intentionally and directly trying to uh, make no reference to anything supernatural or any sorts of creator. So, I mean, that's their starting point. They're, they're starting with a rejection of what the world throughout human history had understood up until that point. And they're trying to come up with an, a way of understanding the world that is not leaning on those sorts of categories. And so their, their starting point is the belief, is a naturalistic starting point. It's basically they're saying um, the key to the past is going to be found in viewing the kind of world that I'm viewing now. And so I, I think that I have everything I need within this creation to tell me how the thing started. Uh, and so I'm not going to make any sort of appeal to any kind of supernatural thing. Uh, so it, it, the point of which I'm trying to say is from the very beginning, it's kind of an anti-God project that they're trying to put forward an explanation uh, that they can come up with uh, that's going to explain what they see uh, on the basis of that. So like, one of the things you have to understand is that that your starting point is going to determine how you're reading the evidence. It's not as if the early evolutionists are just looking at the evidence and following the evidence where it leads. No, they are intentionally, and you can just read their words and they'll tell you. It's not just, it's not that kind of thing. You have to have a starting point. They're looking, they're, they're intentionally trying to come up with a theory of how to explain what they see without reference to a creator. That's what they're doing. And so that's what they came up with. And so you have years and years and years of thought that is built on the same starting point. Uh, that they tried to put forward. And so one of the things you have to understand is that there is no such thing as just um, what's called, a, there's no such thing as a brute fact or a fact that in some sense is just self-explanatory. You look at the world you, and, and, and it's not as if, you know, science, whatever that means, is just uh, self-explanatory. You look at the world and you, you have to have a starting point for reflection. Uh, and their starting point is an anti-God starting point. Uh, for reflection, and so they're intentionally trying to figure out if there's a way that they can explain the existence of the world without respect to God, and that's what they came up with. And we ought to ask ourselves, were they successful in that endeavor? That's what we ought to ask ourselves. Now, you, know, you can approach uh, a study like we're trying to do today, evolution refuted. You can approach a study like this that's going to be heavily scientific and it's going to be 
working through the scientific arguments for evolution, the scientific arguments for special creation. And I, I think it's been a subject that's been somewhat interesting to me over the course of my life, over the course of maybe the past decade of my life. I've tried to read as much as I can on these kind of debates. I've tried to familiarize myself with uh, what's going on in these sorts of discussions. I'm actually the kind of person who likes to, strangely enough, listen to debates about these sorts of things from Christians and atheists, and I, I actually kind of enjoy that and could do that pretty much all day long, every day, if I let myself. Um, you know, whether it's related to this or some other topic, that's just kind of how I'm oriented. But uh, if you were to start out with trying to give an answer to these sorts of things. I, I've noticed that many presentations, there's many people who are going to spend a whole lot of time uh, working through uh, the science as far as that goes, and I think that there's some helpfulness in, 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 in some of us trying to learn as much as we possibly can as far as that goes. And I know with the limits of time and the purpose of which we have here today as we're gathered, I don't know that the most important or helpful thing to do in this sort of context is going to be to do that. Uh, similarly, you have those who are approaching it from a scientific standpoint, uh, but then you have many people who are approaching it from a philosophical standpoint, and there are many arguments for the existence of God, uh, many uh, arguments for uh, creation that we can put forward from a philosophical standpoint, uh, and that, those sorts of things have their place. I kind of talked about one at the very beginning, and if you see evidence of a design, uh, there must be a designer uh, this is a standard uh, argument that many people put forward, but I'm not putting it forward as an argument for the Bible. I'm just putting it forward as something that we've often that people throughout human history have observed as a given. Uh, the point is, you can approach it from a scientific standpoint, you can approach it from a philosophical standpoint, but I think maybe, maybe uh, the best use of our time, so far as I can tell, might be just to pay attention to what the Bible is actually saying and ask ourselves what the Bible is trying to do, uh, because our starting point for reflection is the Bible. We are people who believe that there is a God who exists and who did make us, and he has given us a book to for us to read in order to help us to understand this very topic. And so the word Genesis actually does mean origins. That's what it means. And so it's attempting self-consciously to provide us some sort of account and explanation of origins. And so what I, I mean, we can do, we can approach this from a lot of different directions, but I think maybe... Because we're Christians, maybe the most helpful thing to do is to ask ourselves um, uh, to try to analyze various attempts that have been made to harmonize evolutionary theory with the Bible and ask ourselves, do they work? Do they work? Do they fit? Uh, and if we do nothing else today, maybe we can just focus on what's in the text and ask ourselves these sorts of questions and, and ask ourselves, do they are, are they the product of good exegesis at the very least? And so... Um, I will say that um, there is no way within the scope of the time that we have here today that I can hope to possibly say everything that needs to be said about this subject, and I'm not even going to try. So I'm just going to focus my efforts on this uh, area, and we'll go from there. So attempts to harmonize evolutionary theory with the Bible. Well, I think uh, you know if you're dealing with particularly very liberal uh, individuals, uh, in terms of their perspective of Scripture. Uh, sometimes that can just be a slur word, but that is, the, you 
it's a category that makes sense. If, you, if you're dealing with individuals who are very liberal in their outlook of the Bible, meaning they don't take the, uh, the scriptures as the in, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God, uh, that's what that means. Uh, for many, there may be just a non-attempt to harmonize evolutionary theory with the Bible. So some people who claim to be Christian are oriented in that sort of way where they seem to have no impulse whatsoever to take what you find in the Scripture and harmonize it or uh, show how it's compatible with evolution. They just kind of dismiss it as even a project to begin with, and it doesn't even remotely concern them. And I would say, um, you know... Many, many people are kind of products of the public school system in certain ways, and this is what's being taught. And then you, you, uh, you come out of that, and you, you know, it could be that you're trained for years and years and years and years to, to not critically evaluate what you're learning in terms of evolutionary theory, and you come to the Bible and say, ah, well, you know, that's different, and yeah, I must be missing something, and you just don't even make attempt at, at trying to fit the two things together. And so, um, there are. Plenty of professing Christians who are functionally doing this sort of thing. And I I would say that whatever you're doing there, that is not a Christian, even a remotely Christian way to interact with this subject. Uh, And if you're the type of person who is doing that sort of thing, I would say that I, you know, frankly, I'm concerned about your salvation. Uh, The reason why I would say that is because one of the things that God does when he saves a person is he, he, he saves them and he changes their heart in a fundamental way that there is a submission to the scriptures that's quite profound. Uh, in order to be saved, a person has to, con- to believe in his heart that uh, uh, Christ rose from the dead and that Jesus is Lord. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so confessing that Jesus is Lord means that you take what he says very seriously and you want to follow it and you want to obey it. And, and you don't, you're not the kind of person who feels comfortable just taking large sections or chunks of Scripture and just ignoring them. Uh, so, you know, if you take the Thomas Jefferson approach to the Scripture where you just cut out the verses that you like, you may feel okay doing that sort of thing, but I don't feel okay doing I don't feel okay on your behalf. I, I don't think that we have the freedom to just ignore God's revelation and pick and choose which parts that we like. And if that's our basic stance, then I would have to ask, like, do you understand the Lordship of Christ? What do you, do you understand what you're saying? Uh, if you can, if you can just kind of take the first couple chapters of Genesis and rip them out, throw them on the ground and say, I'm never going to deal with them, never going to think about them. My standard go-to response is just believe anything that uh, the evolutionists say. I would say, I if you can do that there, what's to stop you from doing that anywhere else? And I've often found that the kind of people, honestly, honestly, the kind of people who take that approach with Genesis 1 and are making no attempt whatsoever to harmonize things, no thoughtful attempt, they're also the kind of people when you get to some of the passages of Scripture which are currently unpopular in our society, they're going to do the same sort of thing. So they're the kind of people who... You know, you get to male-female roles uh, in the New Testament or the Old. What are they going to do? Ignore it. Not deal with it. They're not going to look at it. It's just it's going to be like, yeah, I know that Paul says that, but that's Paul, and he's a chauvinist, and he's a misogynist, and everything else, and we have a better understanding of these things today. Uh, and so notice, I mean, now, maybe 15 years ago, not so many people were on this bandwagon, but whatever the Bible says about homosexuality, 
what an awful term, um, an unhelpful term. Um, they're going to be the same sort of people who, when they get to those, they look at what our culture is saying. It's not very popular. What do you think is going to happen to those sorts of passages? They're going to get checked out too. Uh, you know, passages related to the sovereignty of God, those are going to get checked out. It's just it's just a pick and choose approach to the scripture that, you know, fundamentally is is uh, is a very concerning and it's a very dangerous thing that I don't know that um, I'm I I'm very comfortable um, being enthusiastically excited about the uh, spiritual state of a person who is, who is taking that sort of approach. Uh, I mean, the reality is that you know there are difficulties in the Bible for each one of us personally, meaning we all struggle with different sins. We all struggle with different sins. We all, uh, we're all made in certain ways uh, that are unique. And so there are, you know, there are many, there are many sins that I really haven't struggled with all that much throughout the whole scope of my life. And there's others that have been more persistent struggles throughout the scope of my life. And I can, you know, I, I can pat myself on the back and think, hey, I'm really dedicated in following God uh, because, the, you know, the certain areas that I've never really struggled with my whole life, I do okay with, uh, not in any sort of big way. Uh, I, I say, well, look, look how committed I am to God, and I'll just point to the areas where I do well. And then the areas that I don't do well, I just ignore. Well, you know, the reality is all of God's revelations for us, and we don't really have that sort of a, uh, um uh, freedom or permission, and, and it really is that you know each one of us individually ought to look at the scriptures and not just focus on the areas we're doing right, but see all the ways in which we're falling short. And if every time there's an area in which you're falling short, you just ignore it, and you think you're okay, I would say that you probably don't understand the Lordship of Christ. And so uh, there are many people who, um, you know, you talk about attempts to harmonize evolutionary theory with the Bible. There's many people who just make no attempt whatsoever to do so at all. And I would say that that's not the kind of thing that we're trying to promote here. Uh, now, second category of attempts to harmonize evolutionary theory with the Bible, you could describe as ignorant dismissals. Uh, I'll give you a few. I'm, I'm going to call them ignorant sort of dismissals. And the reason why I'm going to call them ignorant dismissals is not because I'm trying to, because I delight in using pejorative terms like ignorant. Uh, I'm using ignorant in uh just kind of a neutral, non-emotion-laden sense of just uh, the kind of thing that someone might say if they haven't read the Bible enough, okay? So but, uh, here's an ignorant dismissal. The Bible's not a history book. Some people might say that. Um, the Bible's not a history book. Therefore, Genesis is not attempting to explain anything about the origin of the earth. Just look at the word Genesis. What do you think the word means? <laughs> it means origin. Uh, what do you think that the Bible is doing? Yeah, certainly it's doing other things. It's not just pure history book. It's not solely a history book. It has a variety of genres uh, within it. Uh, but certainly it's not doing less than history. Certainly we have historical narratives that are given, that are attempting to tell us about things which actually happen. Uh, when we read about the creation account, there's no sense in which when you get to the New Testament... There is no sense in which you can get to the New Testament and read what's happening there and think that any of the New Testament writers thought of Adam and Eve as anything less than actual real people who lived. Uh, historical people, historical figures that actually had a life. 
uh, that they lived. And so part of our understanding of salvation hinges upon us understanding Adam is a real human being, a historical person, and not just kind of like the first ape who, uh, the first, uh, you know, hominid or something that evolved from uh, some sort of lower life form or, or something along those lines. No, Adam was the first human being who represented the whole human race, and the whole human race is cast into sin. Why? Because he was a real person who made a really stupid choice, right? Uh, he is a real, that's what the New Testament says. So we're all consigned to sin and affected by Adam's and Eve's decisions, primarily Adam's decision, because they were real people. And so uh, Adam was a real human representation for the entire human race. And Jesus Christ is going to be a new Adam for those who have faith. Uh, so like there's, you can either be a part of two humanities. You can be a part of the one that Adam messed up, or you can be a part of the one that Christ has instituted. Um, the New Testament writers clearly think that this is a history book uh, in some sort. Not pure history, meaning that there's not other things that are happening, but there, there's clearly historical records that are that are given to us for our reflection. And so when you when you read um, when you read a book like this, uh, you know it ought to. If you read it and if you understand what's going on, you can't just kind of dismiss everything that's happening there. Oh, it's not meant to be a history. Well, it looks like it's history, doesn't it? It looks like it's giving you account of the origins of, uh, of the, the planet. And so who is it written to? It was written to a bunch of slaves in Egypt who just are just coming out of Egypt. So Moses wrote this book to a, to a bunch of slaves coming out of Egypt, and he titles it. You know, in the beginning, God created the uh, heavens and the earth. Uh, we understand this book to be a book of origins, which is telling us about how the world started. So, at, you know, you have a group of slaves coming out of Egypt, and, and, and what Moses does is he wants to tell them where they're coming from. Who are you? <laughs> where are you coming from, Israelites? Where are you going? You know, these are the kind of questions that this book is attempting to address, and you have you know, what, what have often been described as the historical narratives, Genesis, uh, which you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're going to find elements of law in there. It's predominantly just historical narrative that's no doubt selective in certain ways. You're going to have elements of law within there. Uh, you're going to have songs that are even in the midst of uh, some of the uh, things that are happening in the uh, Exodus narratives. Um, what's next? Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So uh, what, do, what do you have happening after that? You have the, the first five books of Moses given to the uh, Israelites to tell them where they came from and where they're going. They're going to the promised land. Once they get into the promised land, what's going to happen? They're going to be ruled by a period of, uh, for a period by judges. And then you're going to have a period of uh, the uh, united monarchy. And then you're going to have a divided monarchy. And then you're going to have them getting exiled out of the land. Uh, and then after they get exiled out of the land, then they're going to come back into the land. They're going to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, what you find in Ezra, Nehemiah, and everything else. What do you think is happening? You're, you're, you're reading a history of the world. That's what you're, you're reading. That's what Moses thinks that he's writing in terms of the first five books. Um, th there's no way you can say that the Bible is not a history book and that be some sort of significant thing related to this topic. If you actually read the thing, if you read the Old Testament, you're going to say, it certainly has given you history. At least it thinks it is. And if it's not, I don't really know what to do with it. If it's not doing, if it's not giving me history, I don't know what this is doing, uh, because I, I don't really know how to interact with it anymore, because that's on the face of it what it's uh, saying. Second, ignorance sort of dismissal. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. Well, look at the Bible. Is it a scientific textbook? E equals mc squared. Force equals math. Mass times acceleration. Remember some of these things, maybe. Um, is that what it's doing? 
Is it, is it doing that sort of thing? Got Newton's laws in there, Kepler. Is that what it's doing? Certainly, it's not a scientific textbook, but the point is not, just because it's not a scientific textbook doesn't mean that it can't speak to areas of science, right? And the areas of science that it speaks to, it's authoritative on. Uh, so, you know, the more that you actually read about the history of the scientific endeavor, uh, one of the things that you'll realize is that, you know, often at this point in the project in Western civilization, in the world at large, uh, we take for granted where the scientific project came from to begin with. Uh, so, I mean, just read a few books about the history of uh, science. Uh, and, and one of, you know, I can give you some recommendations about how to, uh, good books to read from Christian perspectives that are kind of telling the story of science. But one of the things to realize is that because Western civilization was so influenced by a biblical worldview, uh, that provided the unique environment in which science arose. So, like, as Christians, we're not people who are anti-science. We invented the thing, okay? Like, you look around the, like, the Asian cultures and, and, and some of the other cultures of the world uh, at, at, at the time, and one of the things that you're going to realize is that they didn't naturally produce science. We were first to do it. Why? 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 Because we believed in uh, that there was an orderly God who made the, the heavens and the earth. Because we believed in an orderly God who created the heavens and the earth, we thought that nature ought to be organized and orderly and understandable. That's what we thought. And so because we believed in those sorts of things, we were looking for uniformity in nature. We were looking for uh, consistency in nature. And we thought that we could understand, because God is a consistent, orderly God who... You know, part of as you read through this, you're going to realize that he creates things and he organizes things. He's an orderly God. It's even in the text. That's why you have like certain things that are happening within the days. You know, he makes lights in day one, day four. He's going to uh, locate those lights in particular objects. He's organizing the things. You know, he makes the waters and the dry land, he divides them, organizes it. Because we believe in an orderly God, we thought, I can look around the world and I can understand the world, and I ought to expect it to be precise and understandable. And so, I mean, you have scientists who believed in God and who are looking at the... the uh, you, remember, you remember that the first view of planetary orbits was circles, right? Do you remember? Like you, you think back at science, you have a view of planetary orbits that were in circles, and uh, I believe it was Kepler who was driven mad by that because of his belief in uh, an or- organized and orderly God. And he's looking at around the world and he was saying, this is not precise. Uh, these orbits, these circular orbits don't make sense. They don't explain everything that I'm looking with my telescope and seeing. And so it, that drove him to come up with the idea of elliptical orbits. And if I'm wrong on Kepler, you can rebuke me later. But I think it was Kepler. But that drove him to the idea of coming up with elliptical orbits. Uh, orbits because he believed there was a God, right? He believed there's a God and it had to be organized. There couldn't be differences there, right? This is a precise creation. So uh, the issue is, yes, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. No one's saying it is, but what it speaks to, it speaks to authoritatively. uh, And it is part of the evidence that we are given to help us to understand the world that we see. And it might be possible that we will never understand the world truly, Without respect to special revelation, so we are, uh, you know, cre- we are cre- as Christians. You have to understand that, like, it's basic to the Bible. Uh, it's a basic and fundamental belief that the Bible puts forward to us and gives to us uh, that 
apart from the Scripture, I can't understand who I am, where I came from, and where I'm going. I, I, like we are beings that are fundamentally, even before the fall, we are fundamentally dependent on relation, uh, uh, revelation from God in order to even understand what we're doing. Uh, so before, you know, look through, look through Genesis chapter 1, which you just read, and one of the things that you're going to realize is that God makes man in his own image. In order to help man understand who he is and where he came from and where he's going, what, is, what does God do? He gives him truth. This is before the fall. What does he say? What does he say? He says, uh, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's his purpose, right? And God blessed them. And he said, uh, be fruitful. So who do you, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth uh, uh, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed on, his face, on, on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So look, look at that. Before the fall, God makes man. He tells him what his purpose is. He gives him revelation to help him understand who he is and what kind of world that he lives in. And, and you think about that. Now, think about the problems that you see in our society. And... What's happening? Why are we trying to give animals like the right to fair representation in courtrooms? Why are we doing that? Why? Because we don't understand this revelation that God just gave us, right? That's the point. We don't understand that man is given dominion over the animals, that man is created in the image of God, unlike the animals. Uh, we don't understand these sorts of things. So, so uh, why is it? That poor Harambe gets shot and everyone is scandalized by it. Uh, and yet we can murder 60 million babies since Roe vs. Wade. No one cares about it. It's because on our own, we don't figure these things out, right? Do you understand? On our own, we don't figure these things out. And it's not as if just on our own, we, we know that, hey, there's a hierarchy here. We have dominion over the animals. We're fundamentally a different type of creature, uh, creature than them, um, why is our society, by and large, rejected the project of marriage? I wouldn't say rejected totally. It's not a total reject, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's a stated reject and uh, irrational postponing. Why do we, why, why, uh, that uh, most people don't seem to be able to follow through with permanently. Uh, but wh- why is it? Why, why is it? Well, I mean, if you don't have any revelation, you don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand your purpose. You don't understand why God made you. You you don't understand what he expects you to do. And so then you just kind of say, hey, forget it. You know, it's all up to me. I can do whatever I want to, self-invent, and be whoever I want to be. You look around the world. Why why you have little boys that think they're girls, little girls that think they're boys? Why? Well, because they needed that revelation that said, in the beginning, God made them male and female, right? Uh... So, like, the issue is that we're, uh, we're individuals who are hopelessly, in order to understand the world and understand our purpose here and where we, who we are, where we come from, where we're going, we need revelation to help us understand. Now, this is true in terms of just some of the moral instructions that I've given uh, to you today. But, I mean, you can look at 
websites like Answers in Genesis. And, and you can see that there are article after article after article after article after article after article. And I've read a ton of them. But there are so many articles there that are basically trying to say that if you want to understand something like the Grand Canyon, you cannot understand the Grand Canyon without, without reference to uh, some sort of supernatural global flood. So when you look at the Grand Canyon, what do you see? What do you see? You see evidence of a, of a flood is what you see. Why do you have all the layers that you see within the Grand Canyon? Are they the kind of things that just spontaneously arose over time? Uh, you know, just a little bit more sediment each year that adds up and collects. And then you can look at all these layers in the Grand Canyon. You could say, well, let me observe the current rate of, uh, uh, of increase of sediment each year. And then I can, I can you know, with my uh, measuring tape, measure down and figure out how long we are to get to these layers at the bottom, which have animals in there. Can I do that sort of thing? Well, I mean, if you have no, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep kind of thing, then sure. I mean, like, what do you have to work with? What do you have to work with? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to look at what you see, and you say, hey, the key to the past is going to be found in the present. If I see this amount of sediment each year, then that means um, I need to measure that down and, you know, and keep on going down, 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 down. There's animals down there. That must mean this number of years, Right? Does that mean that that's, there's been that number of years? Well, depends on your starting point, right? If, you, if your starting point is to say that I have everything in the natural world and, and the present is the key to understanding the past, then sure, I guess that makes sense to a certain degree. Uh, but then, you know, if you look at Mount St. Helens eruption and you realize that there are layers that look exactly like the Grand Canyon that are laid down in the span of a couple hours, then then it might be that there's another explanation for why you have the animals uh, deposit. Like you have a world. Like understand this. Look at the world we live in and ask yourself, why do we have evidence of mass burials of animals all over the world? Why do we have that with these kind of layers? Why do we have evidence of mass burials of animals and plants that are fossil fuels, right? Like how do you get all the oil and everything else? How did that get there? It was organic life that was buried inside the ground. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, it seems like a flood is one. But no, that can't be it because that never happened before. Right. So but the, the issue is like if you say, well, the flood can't explain it because that kind of thing can't happen because it's just, you know, it's it never happened before. Just like that. And it, you might misunderstand what you're seeing. Do You understand? You might misunderstand what you're seeing. And the issue is not that like, OK, evolutionists are smart and I'm really dumb. You know, like that's not the point. The point is just we have different evidence that we're permitting to be entering into a discussion. And what you really have to ask yourself is which is the better explanation to what you see? Mass burials of animals all over the planet and mass burials of organic life all over the planet so they can be useful in terms of fossil fuels. Maybe there's maybe maybe there's a flood that did that. Maybe that's more reasonable than to think that uh, somehow you have um, – this mass fossilization thing, which is almost impossible to happen on its own. Come on, think about it. Like, when, when do you get an entire dinosaur that's buried uh, in the ground? Like, think about it. I mean, what, what, what normally happens? Is that normally what happens? No, that's not normally what happens. What happens is the thing lives on the ground, and then the skeleton dies, and then eventually it decays, right? I mean, you don't just naturally... Like, fossilization is a unique and rare thing that happens. So, anyways... The Bible's not a scientific textbook. Sure, it's not a scientific textbook, but when it speaks to areas of science, we have to pay attention. 
Oh, I blabbed too long on that one. Bible's not addressing the age of the earth. All right, this is the uh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, and I have no I, I have no sympathy for individuals who say this sort of thing because it's just you know you'll forgive me, but I I want you to turn to Genesis five, please. And I want you to pay attention to what's happening here. The Bible is not addressing the age of the earth. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man. They were created. Now look. Now think about this book that's not attempting to give anyone an age of the earth. Okay? Think about this book that we're told is not attempting to give anyone an age of the earth. You read different genealogies in the scripture, and I want you to, right now, go to Matthew. You leave your finger here, and I want you to go to Matthew, okay? Go to Matthew 1. And I want you to observe something with me to, to, together. So we're going to have a hand in Matthew and a hand in Genesis 5. Okay, Matthew 1. Ready? Look at this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judas was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Is Matthew, here's the question. Is Matthew trying to give you an age of the earth? Why? Why is it not? It's just giving you a list of names, right? Just giving you a list of names. That's all it's doing. So, is it possible to write a genealogy that's going to give you uh, just a list of names that has no information whatsoever about the age of the earth? It's possible, isn't it? Right? Look at that's what Matthew's doing. Just giving you a list of names. Its purpose is not to tell you anything about like time, timing of anything. Go to, go to Genesis five again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. God created man; He made him in, his like, in the likeness of God. Male and female He created them, and He blessed them, and He made them man, uh, and they were created. When Adam lived one hundred and thirty years, let that sink in. When Adam lived one hundred and thirty years. What did he do? Fathered a son in his own likeness and after his own image. He named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. That's all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Look, when Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Right? What does that let me do? What does that let me do? I say, Adam lived 130 years. He had Seth. Now look, Seth lived 105 years, right? And then he fathered Enosh. What do I do? I just add those two up. And what do I get? All right, 130 plus 105, what is that? 405? Or 205, 205, or 235. You can't do, I can't do math when I'm teaching. No, the point though is just, if I, if I, if I was writing it down, I could do it, but... It's too complex for now. Now, the point there is just to say 130 plus 105, that's 235. What do I know now? I know that Seth uh, has a son, right? And he uh, basically, uh, he fathers Enish. So when does Enish live? He lives 235 years after the origin thing, right? But the problem is I can keep on doing this. I go through this whole thing. I keep on doing it. And this is going to take me to Noah, and then when I go over to Noah, what, what do you think I'm going to find in the genealogies over there? They're going to be telling me, I'm going to, I, I get exact 
days and times and periods about how long the flood happens. And then when he's, and you know, even here, you know, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jacob, Japheth. Then I got genealogies later on that are doing the same sort of thing. And I can just basically add all these things up and I can get to Moses. You understand that? Like I can add these all up and get to Moses. So what do you think Moses is doing? Moses is telling people that are coming out of Egypt, this is the history of the world, and he's given them dates so that they can know how far they are from creation. Is Moses is attempting to give the Israelites the age of the earth. That's exactly what he's doing. And if you say he's not doing that, then I'm going to ask you, why didn't he write the genealogy like Matthew if he's not doing that? I don't understand why he would write it this way if he's not meaning for me to understand the age of the earth from the Exodus back to there. So if, he, if that's not what he's doing, what is he doing? Why is he telling them this information? It seems completely irrelevant. Are you going to spiritualize Adam lived 130 years? Is it just a spirit? Like you, uh, it's just a mythological account that you're going to. Will you tell me what is the spiritual significance of Adam living 130 years? And you tell me also what is the spiritual significance of of. Seth, uh, uh, after that, living 105 years. And then what about Enish, living 90 years? What's the spiritual significance of that? What's the deep symbolic meaning of 90? Uh, and then uh, Mahalel lives 65 years. And then Jared lives 162 years. What's the spiritual significance? If it's not trying to do that, what is it trying to do? And I think you, you know, when you're, you're thinking about what's happening here, my point is just to say that you can't just in an ignorant way just dismiss it. Now, uh, two theories, right? gap theory to age theory. I will quickly tell you some responses to these sorts of things. Okay, gap theory and to age theory. So uh, ways in which people try to harmonize evolution with the Bible. Gap theory to age theory. So gap theory is, well, you have these six days of creation, and you know there are massive gaps of time in between these days of creation and everything else. And so, like, okay, yes, like it, there's... The Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know, but there's gaps there. And so that's, that's how you can have a very old earth. It's going to be necessary to have, you know, these uh, uh, simple, complex things gradually turning into very uh, complicated things. Uh, that's, um, that's one explanation. But then, you know, we also do realize that you give a monkey a typewriter and, you know, you can give him an infinite number of time and he's never going to produce Shakespeare, right? So there's, there's always that. But look, gap theory. There's gaps in there. That's, what, that's how we read it. How do you read it? You read it, there's gaps in there. How do you respond to that sort of thing? Well, what happens? What happens on the third day? Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed according to their kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own uh, kinds, and trees bearing fruit according to their own side, uh, their uh, own kind. Okay? Now, what's the problem? Well, we got plants that are made at this one evolutionary period, right? Plants that are made at this one evolutionary period. And then all of a sudden, like, what? You have, like, Millions and millions of years between the next day of creation. There's gaps there. Millions and millions of years. Well, what's the problem? Um, well, it it really isn't until um, let's see. It's it's not really until the fifth day and the sixth day that you start getting animals, right? So you think about that. You have plants that are made on third gap there. Millions and millions of years. You don't have any honeybees to pollinate the plants. What do you think happens? 
Like that doesn't work. That's obviously that doesn't even work logically, right? Um, so uh, I want to say logically it doesn't work. Textually, there really isn't any evidence that that's happening. Day age theory. Each day uh, represents an age. Uh, well, much um, ink has been spilled on this sort of thing too, and it's uh, it falls to falls victim to a very similar critique to what I just described with the. Uh, the gap theory, you know, each one of these days represents an age. Um, you can make the same argument that I just made. Well, you know, you have millions and millions of ages. You have millions and millions of years that are bound up in day three where there's this, it's meant, the day is meant to be not just in a straightforward little 24-hour period. It's meant to be a time period, a vast time period. Well, uh, it seems like you have an age, age and ages of plants that don't have the honeybees needed to pollinate them. And so, you can make the argument that way, but then a second thing you can say there is just to say that it seems like the text goes out of its way throughout the whole scope of Genesis to pay a lot of attention to the evening and morning language. It seems like the, the, there's nothing in the text that would make us to even remotely think that God is not intending these days to be uh, standard sort of time periods with evenings and mornings. Uh, uh, particularly knowing that he's created the sun, moon, and stars to be uh, time signals for humankind, particularly when you think about the, the Sabbath revelation, the New Testament uh, uh, teaching as far as both of those sorts of things, and you realize that you know, throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, repeatedly, the Bible over and over again is going to say God created the world in six days, and this is a paradigm for how human beings should relate to the creation and to work and to everything else. And so... Uh, I think these attempts to harmonize evolutionary theory with the Bible, uh, they, they fall flat when you actually read it. I mean, there are the kind of things you can throw out there and you can say, and you, uh, but I don't think it... Uh, the problem is that if you do take any one of those approach, you're still left trying to explain what's the significance of the evening and morning there. Why do we have uh, dates in these genealogies? And I would want to say that on, this, on the surface of it, it may be much more easy and much more natural just to take it in a straightforward, plain way that it's intended. But... Uh, I hope that was helpful for our time here, and I will end our time with prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege that we do have to come together and to think about these things. Lord, we know that you are good God. And Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.